So we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 14. If you have one of our Bibles, that's page 711. And the, the portion of the story that we're picking up in is just a few hours before Jesus is going to be brutally beaten and crucified on a Roman execution stake for the sins of humanity. And there's this moment here in Mark chapter 14 that we're gonna see tonight where two of his closest friends, a guy named Judas and a guy named Peter, they're gonna find themselves on this collision course with failure. And it's gonna be here in their collision with their own failure that they're gonna receive the answer to a question that they didn't even know that they were asking. It's a question that shapes every person who's following Jesus. It's a question that is relevant to every one of us, whether you're a CEO or a stay-at-home mom, a student or a musician, a mechanic or an engineer, young, old, rich, or poor, whatever your story, it's a question that deep within the core of who we are as human beings, it shapes the way we respond to Jesus, whether we know it or not. It's gonna be the, the question that will cause some of us to give up on our faith when we experience failure. And some of us to get up and be stronger in our faith when we experience failure. It'll be the answer to this question that will cause some of us to be destroyed in guilt and some of us to be set free in to the redemptive work of God that he has for our lives. To be absolutely set free in the context of grace. And it's gonna be the, the answer to this question that Jesus' friend Judas and his friend Peter are gonna discover even though they didn't know they were asking the question. So if you take notes, I'd encourage you to write this down tonight. It's gonna be the question that will frame our time together in Mark chapter 14. And I wanna just pray that the Holy Spirit would give you and I the space to really wrestle with this question. And here it is. Where is your hope actually anchored? Where is your hope actually anchored? Now, I know we're in church, and so I know the way that we would typically answer that question. It's like, my hope is anchored in the unending, undeserved, unrelenting grace of Jesus. That'd be a great churchy answer. But let's just be honest. For, for most of us, that's not true. For a lot of us, our, our real hope is still anchored to our ability to perform well at our jobs or still anchored in our ability to find a significant other it's still anchored in our sexual conquest or our ability to earn money or to climb the corporate ladder or to raise children who will be successful, whatever that means. For a lot of us, we spend our whole lives sitting in churches, hearing sermons and singing songs, and we wonder why the gospel never really takes us anywhere, and it's because our hope is still anchored in a place other than the grace of Christ. And as long as our hope is anchored anywhere other than the grace of Jesus, whenever failure, which it will come our way, it will inevitably come our way, whenever failure comes our way, it will reveal us for who we are. And this is what Peter and Judas begin to, describe, to experience. They find themselves on this collision course. As they're seeking to follow Jesus, they find themselves in this collision course with failure in this place, in this way that they never would have imagined. So tonight, what I want us to do is I just want us to put ourselves in the story. I want us to kind of set aside the things that we think we know about Judas, the, set aside the things we think we know about Peter, and just really ask ourselves, okay, Lord, if we were in this place, in their shoes, what would our failure reveal to us about the places in which our hope is anchored? Would we be the type of people who'd give up or get up? The type of people who would be destroyed by our guilt or the type of people who'd be delivered by your grace. 
What would our lives look like if we found ourselves here? So this is what we're gonna pick up in Mark chapter 14. And before we jump into the text this evening, I just kinda wanna paint a picture for you. Some of you didn't grow up in church, and so maybe you don't know this, but your New Testament, kind of the second half of your Bible, starts off with four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them were books that were written by real people by the power of the Holy Spirit to chronicle the life of Jesus. And each of these guys told the story of Jesus from a slightly different angle. So tonight we're going to look at this story from the context of Mark's gospel, but we're actually going to jump over to Luke and to Matthew as well because they're going to give us some perspective on Peter and Judas that Mark doesn't give us. I think it'll kind of help us fill the story out. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 14 tonight. We're going to pick up in verse 10. And we're going to jump around just a little bit because we've, we've been in this chapter the last three weeks together. And I want us to just trace the journey of Judas and Peter tonight as they get ready to collide with their own failures. We're going to start in verse 10. Uh, We're going to start with the story of Judas Iscariot. And it begins like this. It says, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 apostles, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and they promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand them over. And if you've read the the story, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, he leaves this kind of treacherous moment of betrayal. He goes to the Last Supper up in the upper room that we looked at a few weeks ago. And then he leaves the Last Supper a few minutes early. Jesus says, hey, when are you going to betray me? Judas, sure enough, he leaves to betray him. Jesus and the other apostles go to the Garden of Gethsemane. We were looking at that story last week together out of Mark chapter 14. And Jesus spends a whole night praying that if it's God's will, he would remove the cup of suffering that Jesus is getting ready to endure. And it's right after praying that prayer, talking to disciples, the story picks back up with the betrayal of Judas. Look at this, verse 43. It says, just as he was speaking, Judas, who was one of the 12, appeared. Here they are in the garden, it's late. And the story goes like this. It says, with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one that I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and they arrested him. There's all these things we could look at in the story right here. But I want you to just imagine this for a moment. This is a scene of such intimate treachery. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to have kissed the face of God? To have been this close to your maker and yet to be this far away. I mean, to feel the beard of Jesus, to smell the scent of Jesus, whatever it is that he would have smelled like, to to have been that close and to be yet that far away. And this is the story of Judas, one of the 12, one of his closest friends, one who had heard the sermons and seen the miracles, who had seen God do amazing things. Here he is, this close to Jesus and yet this far away. And so the story keeps going. Jesus is arrested by this mob. It's the middle of the night. And instead of taking him to a prison and letting him wait for a proper trial in the morning, it says they take him to the chief priest's house. And they begin to have this kind of undercover, this kind of shady courtroom scene that begins to unfold because they're trying to get their minds around how they're going to falsely accuse this man who has never committed a sin. Kind of a crazy thing that they're doing here. The story picks up, jump down to verse 53. I want you to see this scene that's unfolding in the middle of the night. It says, they took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teacher of the law came together and Peter followed at a distance. So here we encounter Jesus' other friend. The two stories begin to kind of cross one another. He followed them right into the courtyard of the high priest and there he sat with the guards and he warmed warmed himself at the fire. 
The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they could not find any. And many testified falsely against him, but the statements did not agree. And so this is just a really bizarre scene. They're trying to figure out how do we rope Jesus in. They're bringing in the false witnesses. The folks that they've hired to come falsely accuse Jesus can't even get their story straight. And so one of the chief priests stands up and he says, I'm going to put an end to this. Jump down to verse 60. It says, the chief priest stood before them and he asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? Are you not going to defend yourself? What is this testimony that these people are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? And this is one of the clearest responses of Jesus in all the gospels. Once you hear this, verse 62, he says, I am. And you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is a terrifying statement from the lips of Jesus. One of the most terrifying statements he makes in all the Gospels. He looks at this man who's getting ready to send him to his death. And he says, I am the Son of God and you're gonna see me again. But the next time you see me, I'm not gonna be a battered rabbi. I'm not gonna be a poor carpenter. The next time you see me, I'm gonna be the exalted King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of God, sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He says, you're going to see me again. You're going to recognize me again. And it's going to be a terrifying moment for you. I go, just let the weight of this sit on you. Can you you imagine the scene that's unfolding? It keeps going, verse 63. So the high priest tore his clothes. He says, why do we need any more witnesses, you asked? He says, you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him worthy as death. And then some began to spit on Jesus. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fist and they said, prophesy. And the guards took Jesus away and they beat him severely. And I want you to notice this. This is an important moment in the story. Who is it that is having Jesus murdered? It's not the culture. The culture was not offended by Jesus. Rome was not trying to put Jesus to death. It was the religious people. It was the religious people that could not handle the Son of God because he was so outside the box of what it was that they expected. It wasn't the culture that was offended by Jesus, it was the church. I go, there's a sermon in there that I'm not gonna preach tonight, but I go, I think we have to be careful as we sit here and go, how easy is it for the people who think they have God pegged to be the very ones that put him to death. And here they find themselves. Judas has just betrayed Jesus. Jesus has gone through this kind of rogue trial in the middle of the night. He's been arrested. He's now been severely beaten. We've seen Peter. Now we're gonna see, we've seen Judas. Now we're gonna see Peter. I want you to notice this, verse 66. And it says, and while this was happening, Peter was below in the courtyard. One of the servant girls of the high priest came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him and said, you were with that Nazarene Jesus, weren't you? But he denied it. He said, I don't even know or understand what you're talking about, Jesus said, or Peter said. He went out to the entryway, and when the servant girl saw him there, she again said to those that were standing around, this fellow is one of them, and again he denied it. After a while, those standing near to Peter said, surely you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to call down curses on them, and he swore to them, I do not know the man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to him just hours before when he said, before the rooster crows twice tonight, you will disown me three times, Peter. And Peter broke down and he wept. And there's this scene unfolding here in Mark chapter 14. Two friends of Jesus, they're on this collision course with failure. And it's going to be here in the midst of their failure. They're going to discover something. And what they will discover will cause one of them to give up on their faith and the other to get up. It'll cause one of them to be destroyed in his guilt and the other to be delivered into God's grace. And I go, what is the difference between the journey that Judas finds himself and the journey that Peter finds himself on? 
And what is it about their vision of Jesus that led them in such a different direction? Now, I want us to pause here because we've just got to acknowledge we are 2,000 years removed from this story taking place here in Mark chapter 14. And 2,000 years has given us a perspective that makes it very difficult to really see what's going on in the story. Even those of you that didn't grow up in church, you've probably heard the name Judas Iscariot before. It's probably not the first time you heard that name because his name has become synonymous with treachery with vile, with, with evil. When we think of Judas Iscariot, you don't think of loyalty and kindness and goodness. Isn't it amazing how similar these guys were and yet how different our perception is of them? Every joke you've ever heard about heaven, who is the gatekeeper at heaven? Every joke you've ever heard, it is St. Peter, right? And so you think about this, and when you think about Peter, you think of him as being the gatekeeper of heaven, and yet when we think about Judas, we think of a man who is the footstool of hell. Dante, in his famous literary work, he talked about the inner circle of hell, and he's kind of describing fictionally what hell must have been like, and he talks about getting into the inner circle of hell, and he says there's none other there than Judas Iscariot. We name our kids Peter. We don't tend to name our kids Judas. Last year, there were four million kids born in the United States. Only six of them were named Judas. I would love to meet the parents that named their kids Judas just out of curiosity. If that's your name, we love you. We're so glad you're here. But it's not a common name. I've never met somebody named Judas. Because there's something about this story and our perception of the way the story has folded out where we put Judas in one camp and we put Peter in an entirely different camp. And my question for us tonight as we look at this story in Mark chapter 14 is, are these men really all that different? Are their stories really that different? I want you to think about their similarities for a minute. They are way more alike than they are different. Both of them grew up in really good Jewish religious homes. Both of them, when they were young adults, had an encounter with Jesus that they were willing to leave everything for. I mean, think about this. Peter left a fishing business. Judas left his parents' business. They left their friends, their families, their fortunes behind to go follow Jesus for three years. Both of them had Jesus as their senior pastor. I mean, can you imagine how amazing it would be to have Jesus as your senior pastor? Every story, every illustration, every example, every miracle they were there for. Judas was in the boat when Jesus calmed the storms, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he healed the sick, when he cast out demons. Judas and Peter were there when Jesus multiplied the fish to feed the multitudes, when Jesus walked on the water. Do you realize that Judas was one of the ones that Jesus sent out with Peter to preach to villages that had never heard the name of Jesus? Have you ever thought about the preaching ministry of Judas before? Judas preached the gospel. He healed the sick. He cured those with leprosy. It's believed that he even raised the dead in Luke chapter 10. I mean, there are stories about Judas doing things that nobody in Ethos Church has ever done. And my question is, just how different were Judas and Peter actually? Judas betrayed Jesus one time. Peter betrayed Jesus three times. Who's really worse? And what you begin to uncover in the midst of their failure is not only were their lives the same, not only were their communities the same, not only was their mission the same and their failure the same, even their feeling, their response to their failure towards Jesus, it was very, very similar. And yet this is the fork in the road. There's gonna be something about what they discovered in the midst of their failure that would lead Judas to give it up and Peter to get back up. 
There's something about the difference in the midst of their failure that would destroy Judas and his guilt and would deliver Peter and his grace. And tonight I want us to wrestle with what is it that they discovered in their failure? What is it? Because my hunch is that if it was possible for Judas to spend three years in the presence of Jesus and at the end of the day still miss him for who he is, is it possible for you and I to spend week after week after week in the presence of Jesus and God's people and still miss it? And I want us to look at this tonight. I want us to flip over to Matthew's gospel. I want us to look at what Judas discovered in the midst of his failure. We'll flip over to Luke and look at Peter's response. So flip over to Matthew chapter 27 real, real quickly with me in your Bibles. If you're using one of our Bibles, Matthew chapter 27 is on page 697. I wanna take just a moment to, to look at Judas's discovery, what it is that he finds in his failure and I want us to demystify the, the man that has become known as the evil of all evils. And maybe you'll be like me and you'll go, man, there is a lot of Judas in a person like me. This is the story that picks up in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew gives us a detail about Judas's response to his failure. It starts in verse three. It says, when Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. Now, just push pause there for one second. This bothered me all week. I went, why in the world was Judas remorseful that he saw Jesus condemned? <laughs> like, isn't this what he was like signing up for? Like when you betray someone, aren't you betraying them like knowing where this goes? I'm gonna kind of make a speculation here and if you've tuned me out, would you please hear me on this? Like this is just Dave Clayton's interpretation of what you see unfolding here in the gospels around the life of Judas. You need to test this out in your house church. You need to search this, this may not be right, but I have grounds to stand on. I think as you read through the scriptures, this is true. I would argue that when Judas was betraying Jesus, he wasn't doing it out of hatred. He was doing it out of misunderstanding. And when things went wrong, when he saw the path that Jesus was getting ready to go down because of the choice he just made, it ripped his heart out. See, I think we've been so blinded by our view of Judas, we go, man, he probably woke up this morning going, this is the day that I'm betraying the son of God, you know? And then he went and sold drugs to children and did something evil, you know? Like, we think of Judas and we think of him like that. And I go, no, it's not, it's not who he was. I mean, this guy left everything to follow Jesus. I think Judas was bought in to Jesus. I think he was bought into the message of the kingdom. I think he was bought in to what Jesus was after. I just think he misunderstood how it was that Jesus was getting ready to bring those things about. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus kept talking. He says, the kingdom of God is coming near. And every good Jewish person during the days of Jesus was waiting for Messiah to bring the kingdom of God near. And in their minds, when they heard that declaration that the kingdom of God was coming near, they thought that it was coming by force with might, that it was gonna be a military, a political battle. It'd be like someone showing up to you saying, hey, I'm gonna be the next president of the United States. Do you wanna be in my inner circle? Do you wanna get in on the ground floor before this thing hits the White House? And each of the disciples were like, yeah, we're, we are in for that. You're the Messiah. You're bringing the kingdom. We want to go where you're going. But if you remember on this journey through Mark's gospel, as they get close to Jerusalem, as they get close to Washington, D.C., as they get close to the White House, Jesus looks at them and he starts kind of changing the script. He says, listen, the kingdom of God is still coming. But it's not coming the way that you think it is. This kingdom is going to break in by a cross by suffering, by rejection, by death. And it's not just gonna be my cross. He looks at the disciples and says, all of you have to buy into this as well, as well. And what you see over and over and over in the gospels is none of the disciples understood it. 
They wanted the will of God through Jesus, but they didn't want the ways of God through Jesus. And what I would argue is at the the core of what Judas decided to do, it wasn't this moment of just utter ruthless evil betrayal. I think he was trying to take the situation into his own control. And I think he thought, okay, if Jesus won't take the fight to Rome, I'll bring the fight to Jesus. And I've seen this dude calm storms. I've seen this dude raise the dead. And when the soldiers show up, they'll never know what hit them. Just a speculation. But Judas puts Jesus in a situation that he thinks Jesus will fight his way out of and Jesus doesn't fight his way out of and his heart's broken. And I go, before you're too hard on Judas, have you ever had a moment where you tried to bring about the will of God through your own human effort? Have you ever looked at something that you really thought God wanted to, to bring about? I went, man, I can do this on my own. I go, and it, and it goes wrong. And I want you to notice Judas's response, like make him a human being for a moment. Just make him human. Look at the way he responds. It says, verse three, he was seized with remorse. He returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and to the elders. And he said, I have sinned. And he repents. Listen to that. He says, I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. And one of the most powerful statements in all the scripture, I want you to hear what the religious leaders say to Judas. They say, what is that to us? They replied, that is your responsibility. Some of you heard that your whole life. Verse five, so Judas threw the money into the temple, he left, and then he went away and he hung himself. There's this moment in Judas's life where he tries to bring about God's will through his ways. He discovers in that moment that it isn't gonna turn out the way that he wants. And it's gonna be in the midst of his failure that he's gonna realize his hope was not anchored in the world that Christ is trying to bring about. His hope was anchored in the dead religion that he just left. And it's gonna be here that the dead religion lets him down. Flip over to Luke chapter 22. I wanna see Peter's story for just a minute and then we're gonna kinda see what Jesus has to say about all this. Flip over to Luke chapter 22. If you're using one of our Bibles, that's page 736. Luke chapter 22. And so a few minutes ago when we were reading through that long passage in Mark chapter 14, Peter in his moment of failure, it said in verse 72, in the midst of his failure, it says he remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to him. And I love this because Luke is gonna give us insight into the fuller conversation, the words that Jesus had just spoken to Peter. And I love these words, some of those powerful words in the gospels. Luke chapter 22, we're gonna start in verse 31. These are the words that Jesus had spoken to Peter that Peter remembered in the midst of his failure. He said, Simon, Simon, that's Peter's kind of formal name. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. We could, we could do a whole sermon on that one line. Have you ever thought about the prayer ministry of Jesus Christ for failing people? The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ lives to intercede for his people continually. I mean, to think that right now Jesus Christ is praying for some of us, like, wow, what, what a statement this is. But he looked at Peter and he says, listen, you're getting ready to fail me. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. And I want you to hear the promise that comes out on the other side of this prayer. He says, I have prayed that your faith would not fail. And when you have turned back, you should underline that. And when you've come back, not if, not if you try. He says, when you turn back, strengthen the brothers, strengthen the brothers. And there's this moment here, I want you to see this. Judas, in the midst of his failure, 
discovers that his hope has been anchored in a dead religion. And when he turns to that dead religion, that dead religion says, what's that to us? That's your responsibility. You clean up the mess. You fix it. You get your life together. You be strong. You fix the mess that you've just made. It's a story that some of you have heard your whole life. Peter, in his moment of failure, he realizes his hope is not anchored to a dead religion like Judas's was. But his hope is anchored in a living redeemer. And he remembers the words of the living redeemer. And his redeemer says, listen, you're gonna fail and I'm gonna clean up the mess. You're gonna fail and I'm gonna strengthen you. You're gonna fail and you're gonna get back up because I have prayed, because I have worked, because I have done something. It's gonna be the difference between one who gets up and one who gives up, one who's destroyed by guilt, one who is delivered by grace. It is in this moment on the surface, their lives look the same. They had the same mission, the same calling, the same leader, the same teachings, the same community, even the same failures and the same feelings. But it's gonna be in the midst of their failure. One discovers his hope was anchored in a dead religion that would say, this is your mess to fix. And the other had a hope that was anchored in a living redeemer that said, only I can fix the mess. And on the surface, they looked so similar, but at the core of their heart, there were oceans between the two. And my fear in a place like Nashville is it is way too easy to become people like Judas. To be people who sit in here week after week after week and never ask the questions that expose the reality of where our hope is actually anchored. And the question's not if you're going to fail God. You're going to fail God. You have failed God. I failed God. There are times when your failure towards God will feel deliberate like Judas. And there are times when it will feel cowardly like Peter. The truth is you will fail God. You have failed him and you'll do it again. The question's not if you'll fail. The question is where will you discover your hope to be anchored in the midst of that failure? Will you discover that all along your heart, your life, your hope was anchored upon a dead religion that will say, clean this up, fix it yourself, get yourself out of the mess? Or will you discover in the midst of your failure that your hope was anchored in the only one that could pick you back up? Will you give up or get up? Will you be destroyed or will you be delivered in grace? And the difference is as subtle and as simple as a hope that is anchored in a living Lord. We are not here tonight talking about a God who was. We are here tonight with a God who is declaring that Christ Jesus is greater than every failure, every mistake, over every sellout, over every choice, that only Jesus can make the mess that you've made beautiful again. It's the difference between a God who can forgive and a God who can redeem. To be forgiven is to say, I can tolerate you in this space. To be redeemed means I can still use you in this place. And God is not just a God of forgiveness. He's a God of redemption who takes communities full of Judases and Peters and says, I wanna build a kingdom on your back. I wanna use you to change the world. And I just wanna ask you, Ethos, is your God big enough to fix your failures? Is your God big enough to redeem the places and the ways you've sold them out? Or do you worship the God of Judas? Do you worship a God so small and so petty that he leaves you to fix the mess that only Christ Jesus himself can clean up? See, on the surface, the difference between the two was not that great, but in the core of their soul, it was completely different. And I wanna ask you, where is your hope anchored? 
You know, on a Sunday night sitting in church, it's easy to go, man, I hope I have a redeemer and not a dead religion. But I go, how do you know? Like, how do you begin to really wrestle this out? I wanna give you just a few questions that I found really helpful for me. I don't know if you take notes. Even if you don't, I'd encourage you to get out your phones, get out something to write with. And I'd encourage you to wrestle with these questions in the context of your house church, with, with your spouse, with your friend group, with your roommates, whoever it is that you do life and community with. But I'll just give you a handful of questions to wrestle with that have really helped me sort out where my hope is anchored in regards to Jesus Christ. And so if you're like me, you're gonna find out that maybe the answer to some of these questions is different and, and that's okay, but let the spirit of God do his work in you. So here's, here's the first question as you kind of discern, do I have a dead religion or a living redeemer? Here's the first question uh, to kind of discern that out. When you fail, when you think back on the past, when you have failed, are you quick to cover it up or to confess it? Are you quick to cover up your failure or are you quick to confess your behavior, your sin? One of the quickest signs to show that you have a dead religion is you cover up your failure. It, it, it is the calling card of dead religion. Fix yourself, hide your mess because your acceptance, your value, your belonging in a place like this is to have it all together. And we all know you don't have it all together, so you've got to make it look like you have it all together. And this is the way you know you have a dead religion, that your heart's hope is anchored in dead religion, is you find yourself covering up both your failure in the present and your failure in the past. So in the present, when you sin, you don't want your house church to know, you don't want your friends to know, you don't want your family to know, and so you try to modify the behavior. You become your own PR firm. You don't want anybody else to know. You do this in the present, but you also do this with the past. Some of you have been followers of Jesus. You've been saved for a decade, but you still can't honestly tell people in your house church what you used to be like before you were saved. You're scared that if people really found out what you were like before you were saved, it would somehow nullify the work that God is doing in you in the present. I won't make you raise your hand, but I know there are a lot of you in this room that re resonate with that feeling. It's because even though you've been saved by Jesus, your hope is still anchored in the ways of dead religion. See, dead religion says cover it up. A living redeemer says confess it, tell it, share it, be, be de delivered by the grace of God through it. You know, I shared this with you all a few, a few months ago. Um, I, I lied to my wife, Sydney, over something so stupid. You can go back and listen to the podcast if you wanna hear about my uh, lie to my wife, but there's this kind of embarrassing moment. I lied to her, and then I worked so hard to cover it up, and I'm not proud of this. I'm not bragging on it. But there's this moment of discovery where I went, oh my goodness, my hope is still anchored in dead religion. Why would I lie to my wife about that? Why would I cover that up? Why am I such a fraud? You know how embarrassing that is to be the guy standing up here preaching right now and going, I'm still a liar? Still a liar to my wife. I go, God help me. Because my, my hope is still anchored at times in dead religion. It's the first question. Do you cover it up or do you confess it? Second question that's been helpful for me. When I fail in the past, am I obsessed with managing the outward appearance or dealing with the inward motivation? 
Am I obsessed with dealing with the outer appearance or dealing with the inner motivation? Some of you got this growing up in very legalistic churches. You and your family, you would just be fighting all the way to church. And then you'd pull in the parking lot and your dad would say, all right, you get it together. You get the smiles on. And some of you know this, right? And like, you, you, you get out of the car. You're the Brady Bunch. I mean, you're like the most spiritual people on the planet. And then you get back in the house and you're not talking anymore. Why? Because you're taught that in the house of God, there's a way you act, there's a way you talk, there's a way you look, there's a way you think, there's a way you act. And some of you are taught your whole life, it's all about the outer. It's all about the appearance. It's all about what you project towards other people and that is the calling card of dead religion. Dead religion is obsessed with reputation. What do other people think about me? A person whose hope is anchored in a living redeemer is obsessed with character. Who am I when no one can see me? A hope that is anchored in a living redeemer says, you know, when nobody's watching, God, how can you clean up the mess? Jesus, how can you deal with the motivations? Why did I lie to my wife for her something so stupid? That's the way you know your hope is being anchored in a living redeemer. You're far more interested in him cleaning up the inner than you are managing the outer. First question, do you cover it up or do you confess it? Second question, are you obsessed with managing the outer or dealing with the inner you? Third and final question, in the midst of failure, do you run from community or do you run to community? Do you run from community or do you run to community? When your hope is anchored in dead religion, every time you screw things up, your only option is to get out of Dodge. Find a new church, find a new house church, find a new friend group, find someone new to date, find a new wife, find a new family, find a new job. If it's really bad, find a new city or a new state. If it's really bad, find a new country. Like you just, you just keep running because if you have dead religion, you've been taught your whole life that the reason you belong in a place like this is because of how you appear to us. And as soon as that bubble is burst, you have to run from anyone that knows the real you. And if, it, if you look back over your past, if every time you have found yourself in the midst of failure, if you've been tempted to just run, it's probably a, probably a reality that you may have a heart that's been anchored in dead religion. Sometimes there's good reasons to run. But a lot of times we run just because we don't want people to know the real us because we think if they really know us, they won't love us. It's a reflection of how we really see God. But when your heart and your hope is anchored in a living redeemer, when everything hits the fan, when you fail, instead of running from community, you run to community. It's what Peter does. I love Peter's story. It's one of the only things he gets right in the midst of his failure. He shows back up in the room with the other apostles, all who had betrayed Jesus as well. And he shows back up in that room and he goes, guys, I'm here. I failed him and I'm here. It was there in the midst of community that he began finding his true north again. He began finding the place that would point him back to the one who had got him there in the first place. And it would be there in the context of community that Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, would appear to him three days later, break the bread, take the wine and say, I told you when you came back, I prayed for you and you came back. 
You get into the book of Acts and Peter's standing up and he's preaching in there in that audience. He's preaching to Jesus's mother <laughs> and Jesus's brothers. I go, man, how crazy would it be to preach to the family of the very one you betrayed? I go, you can only do that when you've looked into the eyes of grace. And here's what I love about this story. This is not a story about Judas's badness. And this is not a story about Peter's goodness. This is a story about Jesus's bigness. That Jesus is big enough to redeem the failures. That Jesus is big enough to choose a Judas and to choose a Peter and to invite them both to break the bread and to drink the wine. And the real difference between the two is that only one of them believed that God was big enough to keep his promises. And I go, where are you in the story? Whose God do you worship? The God of Judas or the God of Peter? Where's your hope really, really anchored? Jesus wasn't caught off guard by the betrayal that went down in Mark chapter 14. In fact, he predicted it. He knew it from the beginning of time and he chose them to be on his team because he knew that 2,000 years later there'd be someone like you sitting in a room like this who would do the very same things and it would be hard for you to believe that Jesus Christ would choose someone like you to be on his team. But here's the beautiful thing about Jesus is that Jesus always fills up his kickball team with losers like you and I, with Judases and Peters. He says, come to the table, take the bread, drink the wine. My grace is bigger than your guilt. My strength is bigger than your sorrows. I am bigger than the failure. Ethos, look around. This room is full of Judases and Peters. And by the grace of God, we get to go to the table. We get to take the bread. We get to drink the wine. We get to celebrate in the community, not because of our greatness, but because of his. I mean, how amazing is that? Every week, this is what we celebrate. And so tonight, for some of you, it is your time to come home. You have shipwrecked your life and everyone's tried to convince you that the story is done. There are things that are irredeemable. And I just wanna tell you, God is bigger than that garbage. God is bigger than the lie. Come home tonight. Be saved, be forgiven, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Like, come home tonight. Some of you, that's your story. This is a safe place to come home to. A huge room full of Judas's just like me. For some of you, it's not that you need to come home, it's that you need to pick up your phone and you need to call someone who's heard the message that Judas heard when he went to the religious leaders. Some of you have friends and the only message they've ever heard is this is your mess to clean up and you need to call them tonight, you need to take them out to lunch, you need to sit down and have a cup of coffee and you need to say, hey, it's time to come home. Here's how big the grace of God is. You don't have to give up, get up. Don't be destroyed in guilt, be delivered in grace, come home, come home. And all of us tonight, whatever your story is, you're welcome at that table. You get to take the bread, you get to take the wine, we get to rejoice in the greatness of Christ because Christ is great, because Christ is good, because Christ picked a team full of people just like me, people just like you. Praise God, what a miracle it is that I get to be in a place like this. Wow, how awesome. So here's what we're gonna do. In a minute, we're gonna stand up we're gonna take communion. We are gonna worship our faces off because we're singing to a God who would do this. To a great, amazing God. We're gonna have a time of prayer over here. We did this a little bit differently this morning. I just wanna tell you, we'll stay here as long as we need to stay here. There are some of you tonight that need to be delivered from some chains of oppression that are holding you down. We saw God deliver some people in amazing ways today. If you need to be prayed over, you don't even have to tell us your story. Come up front, there's this little respond banner over here to the left and there'll be some men and women. We'd love to just pray over you. I'd love to see God 
just wreck your life tonight with his grace. And so as we take communion, if you need to be prayed over, come up front. We'll stay and pray as long as we need to. Let's stand together. I'm gonna pray over you, then we'll take communion and you can respond as needed. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this place that we get to gather in tonight.